This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's show, once again, we're focusing on COVID-19. And specifically, this is our 11th show, and our goal is really to provide good information about the COVID-19 pandemic at this point. Um, it's Our information is really based on science. This is not based on political opinion. Like you'll hear on many of the programs when you turn into AM radio, you turn it on and you'll hear about political opinion. So what we want to do is provide you with good information and kind of correct some of the bad information out there. Um, uh, on that t- note, uh, this week, a White House spokesperson uh, came out and was critical of the World Health Organization. But uh, her criticism was that, where have they been? This is COVID-19, not COVID-1. So now, regular listeners to this program will know a little bit, and it probably uh, bears repeating, a little bit about the history of the COVID virus. It's known as a novel coronavirus The reason it's called novel is because it's not been around long enough for humans to build up an immunity. COVID-19 is the latest member of the family of coronaviruses that have been with us since the 1960s. It's called 19 because it was found in 2019. So it's not like there's been there have been 18 of these before COVID-19. There are seven types of the coronaviruses. Um, uh, rather, seven types that affect humans. Uh, four just produce a common cold. And, and we're familiar with these viruses. We had the SARS virus in 2002, uh, the MERS virus, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, um, in 2012. So, uh, you know, COVID-19 is really just the indication of that. And it's important for us to know that. Um The second thing, you know, a lot of people come on the air and try to draw analogies between COVID-19 and the H1N1 virus. I heard several uh, political opinions here. It's interesting. They're political opinions, but it seems like everybody thinks they went to medical school or they went to epidemiology school. Uh, So it's important to really get these things in focus. The H1N1 swine flu vaccine, swine flu outbreak was a global pandemic in 2009. There was a transmission of the virus from pigs to humans. It, it too was a novel virus, um, and it pr- resulted in about 18,500 uh, deaths uh, with 151,000 worldwide. So people say, well, we didn't close anything with the H1N1. We didn't have to do this. Well, the reason we didn't have to do this is not all those cases came in in a concentrated period of time. So if you see what we're dealing with now with COVID-19 is that everything has come at one time and has overwhelmed our healthcare system. 
So with that, we have had to have closures and isolation. Uh, remember, we talk about on this program getting back to the really the basic three principles of epidemiology, identification, isolation, contact tracing. On the topic of identification, how do you identify it? You test, you test, you test, you test. We have not been able to test adequately. And I think that's coming to light now. The reason is, and, and I'm on a lot of these calls. Every day we do uh, a various group calls with hospitals. And the topic keeps coming up because the federal government is saying, well, we now have the Abbott 2000. We have this. We should be able to do this many tests a day. So the question becomes, why aren't we doing that this many tests a day? And the reason is because it's, it's a series of things that have to fall into place before you do the testing. So what do you need? You need to collect the sample, right? And that takes... Um, a swab. Then you need to put it in a medium, some liquid, a transport medium. Then you need a reagent when you put it in the machine, and then you could run the test. So the problem here is we have all this equipment to run the test, but we don't even have swabs. Matter of fact, I got a letter this week from the Department of Public Health asking me as a licensed physician, do I have any swabs in my office that I'm willing to donate to the state. That's how bad we are right now. We don't even, have, we're asking doctors to donate what are essentially elongated Q-tips so that we could do testing. So as far as the state of Connecticut goes and many other states, there's a disconnect between what the federal government has been saying and what has happened. And I think Dr. Fauci brought that to light yesterday in a press conference that we have to fix those disconnects if we're going to be able to identify and follow through on getting back to life. The other thing is obviously contact tracing. We need a method, a way and a method to follow those people who are infected. Until then, we need to continue to isolate. And hopefully numbers will start going down and continue to go down and we can gradually get back into a normal or semi-normal routine. A lot of times what we're trying to figure out, and a lot of people keep asking, when is that? Well, we got thrown a curveball this week because we've, thought, we've known about asymptomatic spread, right? Another term. People without symptoms can spread the virus. What we're also finding out is about pre-symptomatic spread. So a study published this week by in the journal Nature said that people who are pre-symptomatic for five days before they show symptoms are spreading virus. Matter of fact, this is probably the most virulent time. So as much as we're checking everybody's temperature, right? I had to go to the hospital this week and, and, and they check my temperature, right? Before you go into the building, they check your temperature. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't have the virus and I'm not spreading it. So there's this pre-symptomatic spread followed by the symptomatic period and then the post-symptomatic period. So it's frightening to think that people could be spreading this virus 
before they show symptoms. And that's our real problem right now. Uh, we have uh, difficulties with really trying to follow this whole process through. So you have an acute phase where you have symptoms. Then you have this convalescent phase. Any illness produces this way. Anytime you're sick, it's an acute illness. Then you have the convalescent time, and then you're recovered. So in the acute phase, we're isolating and testing. The next phase would be going to some modified activity. But we're not going to get back to the recovered or normal phase until we get to a vaccine. And I think that's the key. And it's very important with respect to testing to understand the difference in dealing with COVID-19. Some people have talked about analogies with HIV and Ebola. But understand, HIV and Ebola spread by contact with body fluids. COVID-19 is airborne. So if you test negative for HIV, the only way that could convert to being positive is if you return to risky behaviors. With respect to COVID-19, all you have to do is step outside your house and you could become positive. So that negative study does not necessarily last a long time. So with that said, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of information out there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about some of the terms being used. And also, a lot is being talked about with herd immunity. Some people are out there saying, let's just open up the floodgates and let this thing go. And we'll decide on what the acceptable loss is. A dangerous term, acceptable loss. So with that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Mary Beth Janicki. Dr. Janicki is a board-certified obstetrician, and she is the director of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine. We have a lot of questions about how does COVID-19 affect pregnancy. I'm also going to be taking calls in the second half of the program. The phone numbers here, I'll give them to you now, 860-522-9842 and one 800 966 9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And today I'm happy to have as my guest, Dr. Mary Beth Janicki. Dr. Janicki is the director of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at St. Francis Hospital. She is a medical doctor and a board-certified obstetrician. Dr. Janicki, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, I just find your specialty so fascinating, um, just the fact that you specialize in high-risk pregnancy. Can you tell our listeners what is maternal-fetal medicine? So, mater so maternal-fetal medicine is a branch of uh the, the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology. So I am an obstetrician gynecologist. I did a four-year residency in OBGYN, and then I did an additional three years of training in maternal fetal medicine. So I only take care of pregnant patients, and I um, specialize in the topics of women that uh, have complications of their pregnancy, 
women that have um, medical conditions that are complicating their pregnancy. And also, I um, also do prenatal diagnosis using ultrasound to get women information about the health of their babies. Uh, I didn't realize there was that much. I mean, that's seven years after <laughs> medical school of training. Um, yeah. I didn't even know it, it It took that long. And, and I understand because it's so highly specialized. But let's get to the point. How does COVID-19 affect a pregnant woman? So as you, as you know, we're learning new information about this disease and this virus every day. Um, and so we, we have very limited information um, because there just isn't a lot published right now. But, the, but I would say, though, that the information that we do have is reassuring. Unlike uh, women that are infected with the flu, another respiratory illness, uh, women with the flu actually have more severe disease and have worse outcomes than women that uh, people that are not pregnant. In the case of the coronavirus, we are finding that pregnant women do not seem to have an increased risk of severe disease compared to non-pregnant adults. So that is reassuring. Um, obviously, we don't want any women to get any pregnant women to get this, but we're not seeing worse outcomes compared to the non-pregnant patients. Um, and in addition, there's many viruses that women get during pregnancy that they can pass to the fetus during their pregnancy. And although the data is limited, we are not seeing uh, transmission of this virus across the placenta. And if, if we do see it, or if, if they do, it does, does turn out to be the case because there have been some infants that have contracted the illness, unclear whether they got it during delivery or after birth, but these infants are actually doing very well. So, so we have some, uh, you know, reassuring data in that respect. I guess my question also is we've been hearing stories on TV of women who have the coronavirus and they're delivering these preterm infants while they are comatose. And I mean, these are amazing stories, uh, even to me, who's involved in medicine daily. Um, I, I'm sure, So these women are on a respirator because of coronavirus and we're delivering the babies, I guess, by C-section? Is Why are we delivering them early? So that's correct. I've, the, some of those reports are coming out of New York. There was a great article in the New York Times about uh, some patients in Brooklyn that, that had the disease and had a very severe form of the disease and did get delivered. So what, what can happen is that obviously mom is breathing for both the baby and herself. And if her disease progresses to a severe form where she has respiratory compromise and requires assisted ventilation, then we also know that the baby is going to have compromise to uh, his or her oxygen supply. And so if mom is not doing well, baby's not going to do well. So in those circumstances um, where, where we do see moms have respiratory compromise, then, you know, sometimes doctors have to make the decision to deliver the baby preterm in order to uh, be able to properly oxygenate the baby and also to facilitate the uh, respiratory function of the mother as well. And, and those cases are happening. Fortunately, they are not frequent, um, but, but those tough decisions do have to be made. And, and also, fortunately, we have some very good 
news about the way how mom and baby are doing. I know this is, I'm throwing this one out there, and I, and I realize you may not have an answer, but do we have any idea, we, you already said COVID-19 does not cross the placenta. Do we have any idea if there are going to be long-term effects on an infant? And again, I know because as a neurologist, we're still just finding out the neurologic problems from COVID-19, but uh, do we know of any, or are we expecting any long-term effect uh, on an infant who is born to a mother who has COVID-19? Well, once again, I, I want to say we're not, it's not definite that the virus doesn't cross the placenta. But as you know, being a neurologist, comparing COVID-19 and the limited data we have on, the, on how babies are doing compared to, for example, when women contract uh, cytomegalovirus during pregnancy, or we all um, know about how the effects of the Zika virus, when that virus crossed the placenta, um, we are not anticipating the the same types of outcomes that that those viruses, Zika and uh, CMV, have to the baby's long term, which which are devastating neurological consequences. So, so I would say the um, COVID nineteen is more comparable to influenza, which we don't. Influenza, as I said, is is a more severe disease. In women, it can lead to preterm birth, put women into spontaneous preterm birth, and women have more severe disease compared to when they're not pregnant. But the influenza is, doesn't show long-term effects, and I, and I think we're optimistic or hopeful that coronavirus will be similar to influenza in that respect. I, I guess my, my last question, we just have a short while. You know, as a father and grandfather, I understand the importance of a mother and infant bonding, um, and especially right in the delivery room. Uh, and we're hearing about, well, if a mother has COVID-19, she really can't be exposed to the child, some for up to two weeks. Do you think that's going to have a long-term effect on the child, that lack of the initial bonding between mother and child? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, many women are separated from their babies. Um, if, a, for example, a baby needs to go to the NICU or a mom has a complication of her pregnancy um, where she might, you know, maybe there's a postpartum hemorrhage or mom has preeclampsia and has to stay in the delivery room on magnesium okay. for seizure prophylaxis, and then those women are reunited with their baby. And I am not aware of any long-term consequences. Um, I think that, you know, I think that these you know, that is the recommendation to decrease the baby's risk of contracting the virus if mom is infectious. In fact, if she's coughing a lot, you okay. know, you certainly don't want this infant to get the infection. I, I think that, it, you know, they're gonna, there's going to be some case-by-case. Case, these cases are going to be done in, on an individual level, and I'm optimistic that that, that separation will be um, very, won't be long. Dr. Janicki, thank you. Thank you for all the information, and thank you what uh, for everything you do on a daily basis at St. Francis Hospital. Oh, and thank you, and thank you for providing this information to your listeners. All right, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to be taking your calls in the second half of the program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC. News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, we have the lines open for questions, but I've got several questions um, that have come in at info at alessimd.com. So we'll address those. But um, there are some other factors, and I think there are terms people are hearing uh, that they're not familiar with that may help when you're listening to broadcasts. So one of them is uh, a mathematical term called the r naught. So it's the R and a little zero below it. And the r naught is a mathematical term that indicates how contagious an infectious disease is. So it's a generalized term. So thinking about it, if the r naught is less than one, that means for each existing case, less than one other case will occur. There will be a contagiousness of less than one. If it's equal to one, that means if one person has it, they will spread it to at least one other person. And obviously, if it's greater than one, then there is spread to more than one person. Now, originally, for COVID-19, we thought the r naught was between two and three people. Some people have said that it may be up to six people. Probably the greatest r naught that we know of right now uh, is measles, for example. So the r naught for every individual case of measles, there is a calculated spread to 18 other people. For mumps, it's 10. So you could see that for those that are respiratory transmitted, there are higher r naughts. There's higher contagion and contagiousness of the problem as opposed to hepatitis or Ebola or HIV, where it's a much lower figure of about two. So again, that r naught is going to be interesting for us to know is how much of a spread there is in relation to COVID-19. And that gets back to the point that we don't know that until we can test adequately. And there's been a lot of controversy. I mean, you'll hear it on a lot of other shows. Is the federal government's responsibility? Is the state's responsibility? Uh, I know that it it's somebody's responsibility. And the only thing we can do until we get that adequate amount of testing, and I think yesterday at the press conference, um, the uh, CDC or FEMA said it, uh, that the figure may be as high as 4.5 million tests per month uh, in order to uh, get to a safe level of testing. But a lot has also been said about the topic of herd immunity. Now, herd immunity is when a sufficient percentage of a population have an antibody so that a contagious disease can no longer spread. And it's variable. Uh, we believe the lowest it is is about 40% for something like polio, whereas for measles, it's fairly high at about 95%. So that means you need 40% of the population as, at a minimum to have the antibodies, to have some immunity, in order to keep those who don't have the antibodies safe. So an article published in the National Review by Jim Garrity this week, really looked at the mathematics behind this. Because, again, we're hearing these this term acceptable loss. Acceptable loss 
is actually a battlefield term. In other words, what is the acceptable number of troops you will lose in order to gain something? So in this case, there are actually people talking about what is an acceptable number of American lives lost in order to gain herd immunity. I, I never thought I would hear that. I've even heard one doctor talking about the amount of acceptable loss of our children in order to open schools. The acceptable loss is zero. Okay, folks, let's get back on the page here. But the National Review looked at this. So when you hear talk show hosts come on and all say, let's open things up. Let's have a COVID party, whatever you want to do. Let's just let everything go back to normal, save our economy, and let the chips fall where they may. You need to know what the acceptable loss is with that philosophy. We know that the global death rate for COVID-19 is 2%, and in the United States, it's 5%. Okay, so let's look at it. If the estimate, let's take the low estimate of 40% to reach herd immunity. With a U.S. population of 330 million, that means the minimum, minimum needed for herd immunity would be 132 million people who need to catch the virus to get to that 40%. That means just 132 million people have to become ill. Now, you reduce the death rate if you take that, and say you take this 5% death rate and reduce it by a factor of 10. Say it's 0.5%. Say that, listen, they're exaggerating at 5%. Make it 0.5, a half of 1%. Just taking the half of 1% of the 132 million people, that's 660,000 American lives lost just to reach the minimum of herd immunity in this, in this country. If you went with the 95% estimate, plugging it in, okay, we're talking about 1.5 million American deaths. And here's the real kicker. We don't know that those antibodies that you get will give you a long-lasting immunity. It may only be a few months. So you may have lost by opening up the floodgates, okay, by liberating. That's the new term, right? Let's liberate, okay? Let's liberate the state. Let's liberate the country, and we'll get to herd immunity. You're going to lose between 660,000 and 1.5 million Americans. That's not acceptable by any means. So before people go shooting off these theories of let's open things up, let's look at the numbers and do it in a scientific basis. That's why we're staying home that's why we're wearing masks, okay? We will get back to a normal level after we get a vaccine. That's going to be it. So until then, we have to behave sensibly. And those numbers are, are, are so conservative, um, it, it, it's absolutely frightening. So with that, we're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to come back and get to the questions that have been coming in to me um, on the info at LessCMD. Also, if you have a live question and you want to come on, um, the phone number 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds for our final segment. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, wanted to get to some questions uh, people have sent over at info at alessimd.com. Feel free to send those over uh, to me. Uh, we had a, a question uh, regarding spitting on the sidewalk. Kind of interesting. Um, something I hadn't thought of because obviously um, that's a real problem. That's always a problem. And the question was, is it against the law? It's always been against the sanitary code. I mean, you can be fined, I guess, for, uh, for spitting on the sidewalk. But in this day and age, are we going to change that? Because obviously that spit is an infectious process that's being so maybe maybe at the end of this we're gonna learn how to behave better i mean it's it's pretty gross actually so the question is really one that highlights uh, an interesting and bad habit and maybe we're going to get rid of some bad habits um maybe we're going to be really changing how we behave And, and let's hope so um, so with that, I thank you for bringing that up. It's certainly not something I thought about. Uh, another question that came in, uh, we hear a lot about antibodies. Uh, if you have antibodies, is immunity permanent? And if not, for how long? Well, that's the interesting thing. And we mentioned that previously is your immunity from antibodies. So we're hearing about the antibody tests and the antibody tests are going to be quick tests if we ever get them. They're going to be quick tests to tell you if you have the antibody. Have you been an asymptomatic carrier of the disease? And are you currently infected? So two different questions. Currently infected or were you infected in the past and have antibodies? It's those antibodies that are going to tell us who is somewhat immune. Is it permanent? We don't know that. What determines that? Well, it what's going to be determined are the titers, how high a concentration of those antibodies you have in your blood. There are also going to be other influences um, in terms of uh, sex, age, things such as that. So we, we have a lot of things that we don't know about this immunity. But we do know that antibodies will give you a certain level of protection. That's going to be the key testing. If we want to get back and get this economy rolling, we have to do that and do it a lot. So until we get that rolling, uh, we're not moving into the next phase of things. Another question that keeps coming up is um, when will we be able to return to sports? Uh, When are we going to be able to watch baseball, specifically baseball people are are excited about? Um, I know there are a lot of WNBA fans. They had their draft this past week. Uh, When will we be able to watch uh, basketball and and baseball again? And right now, that's that's a huge question. Uh, This week, the Major League Baseball study was done. It wasn't wasn't a study done to see if we can get back to baseball. Uh, It was a large population study where they took 10,000 people and had them do an antibody test. And they were they chose Major League Baseball and all the people associated with it so that they could get a good cross section of America. But the question becomes, who has the antibody and how can we get back? Well, in order to get back to where we want to be, we need a vaccine. 
That's for sure. And the vaccine is a bit off in the distance, and I'll talk about that in the next question. But So how are we going to get back to sports? There's going to have to be a limited geographic area. We cannot have players flying all over the country playing. So they've talked about playing a lot of games just in Arizona, where there are a lot of fields available. Players and their families will be quarantined. They'll be in a limited geographic area. They will have to be tested every other day. Remember, the test for whether you have the virus or not is only good for that snapshot of time. Once you go back out on the field, you can get reinfected. So they're talking about testing for the virus, every player and staff members every other day. Obviously, no fans will be in the stands. And um, we're going to see how this progresses. Uh, believe me, they want to get back, and, and I think it's important, but it has to be done uh, safely. Um, we have Bill from Manchester calling in. Bill, you have a question. Yes, uh, good morning, doctor, and thank you very much for your time to discuss these topics today. Thank you. Uh, my, my question is around testing. Sure. Um, I saw the, uh, the COVID update, if you will, from Dr. Burks last evening who touched on testing again. And they mentioned the Sentinels, the Sentinels being the nursing homes and the inner cities where they really need to test more frequently to determine what the actual infectious rates is. And because those are Sentinels for uh, determining the widespreadness of this disease. Now, along with that, the, the doctors showed that Connecticut has the ability to test 240,000 tests a month which equates to 12,000 a day. Now, that also includes using um, equipment that's currently housed in locations that may be institutional or educational. I would like to know, with the issue of the swabs aside, because obviously with 184 countries infected, there's a demand on swabs unlike ever seen before, as are the tubes and everything else associated with testing. But do you know what the state is currently testing? If 12,000 a day is a possibility and a potential, do you know where we're at? That's a great question. Uh, we are markedly lower than that. Uh, and the reason is, for example, uh, I was on one call with one institution where they had about 600 tests available, not just for that day. Um, I was at UConn uh, this week. I went past the testing site, which was shut down because they did not have uh, enough to do the test. So uh, I think you bring up a great point, Bill. When they talk, when Dr. Burks was talking last night and showing graphs, they were talking about capacity, right? So we have the capacity to do this many tests. But there's obviously been a huge disconnect between the swabs the transport medium, the reagents. So your points are well taken. We're not even close to that. And and really, I think we're doing, and again, I, I think we're doing about 2,000 tests a day. The other limiting feature here is personnel to do these tests. Um, these lab uh, technologists are working ridiculous hours to try and crank these out. 
So again, we have a lot of shortages and there's been a huge disconnect. So when I think there's a misunderstanding when people present the potential capacity nationally to do testing and what's actually being done. Well, if we I, can get up. Yeah, I think you're right. I, Go ahead. I completely agree. And, and the issue needs to be less political around the government being responsible for these swabs. And it needs to come down to each individual state determining how can we work around these issues that we have and, uh, you know, pointing the finger at the federal government, I mean, they're in the same situation as the 50 states and, and everything else is. They, they didn't see this coming. So, so we need to look within the state to see what can we do for workarounds to enable more of the available in-state testing rather than sitting there saying the federal government doesn't have this. What can we do for ourselves is the question, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Bill. I think you hit the nail on the head. And in closing today, I wanted to talk just about that. A lot of people are getting on and pointing blame. There's a lot of finger pointing going on uh, all over COVID-19. And I have to tell you, that's upsetting to me. And, and from Bill's call, it sounds like it's upsetting to a lot of us. From the standpoint that there'll be plenty of time to place blame. This will be a worldwide case study in how not to manage a pandemic. But that doesn't help us now, pointing fingers at China, the federal government, the state government, calling people names and telling them they'll get back to work isn't going to help us. What's going to help us is controlling what we do as good citizens, pitching in in any way we can so that we could move forward and get back to the greatness of this country. So if we could just divert our energy from that. OK, stop placing blame, start taking responsibility. We will truly become liberated with that. I want to thank Mike Okel, who's been on the board today uh, for Healthy Rounds and uh, Jeff Chandler, who's in charge of sales and marketing. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been getting in touch with me at info at Your questions and comments are much appreciated. You could also get the Healthy Rounds podcast, you could download it on radio.com or iTunes if you missed any part of today's program. With that, please remember to stay safe. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that any number of ways these days. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.